working through this series called Committed to Worship. I want to tell you a little story that happened uh, this past deer season. Craig and Bruce, that you probably know, were, uh, were dragging their dead deer back to their car, and I approached them, pulling along my deer as well, and I said to them, uh, you know, I don't want to tell you how to do something. You guys are accomplished hunters. But I can tell you that it's much easier if you drag the deer in the other direction. Then the antlers won't dig into the ground. And after I left, I heard that they decided to try it. A little while later, Craig said to Bruce, you know, Pastor Tim was right. This is a lot easier. Yeah, Bruce said, but we're getting a lot further from the truck. I, I didn't ask for permission. Do you mind if I share that? And I don't even know where Bruce is. He's going to kill me. There he is. He's a red one. Look how red he is. I love this guy. Listen, what we're going to do this morning, though it's easy to understand, it's extremely little, or very difficult rather, to live. And there's a potential, now that we're in our 12th week of this series, it's easy to lose our way and go about the wrong directions. And so I want to pull you back. I'm going to explain this in, in um, I think, very uh, simple but in-depth terms. Three things that the Apostle Paul tells us this morning from Romans chapter 12. Here they are. I'm going to give you a brief uh, preview. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Now, what does that mean for us? who are trying to live out these truths in the community called the church. Well, let's look at them. Here we go. Number one, and I'm going to encourage you to take notes this morning. I'm going to give you a lot of in-depth background to some of these words that I think is going to pop out for you some new and significant understanding of what it simply means to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Number one, what's it mean to rejoice in hope? We can understand, right, how to rejoice on our birthdays. We can, re we can rejoice on the last day of our last class. I still remember how that felt and when I finished up that very last day in my graduate work. Like the world had lightened on my shoulders. We know how to rejoice when a friend or a loved one comes to know Christ. But friends, listen. What does it really mean to rejoice in hope? Now, we've read that countless times. I'm sure we've even, many of us have said that. But have we ever stopped long enough to really think, well, you know what, I wonder what that means to actually rejoice in hope. I'm not sure I get that. You know, that word rejoice was the word that people used when they greeted one another in the morning. Uh, hymns were often sung with the exhortation at the end to rejoice. When they would write letters, they would customarily open up their writings in ancient Israel, ancient Rome, with this word rejoice. In fact, if you remember, when we went through James series, verse 1 of chapter 1, the very first message in James, I taught you what it means to greet one another. When Paul said greetings... We try to actually live it out. It means that I come to you, Dave Best, hoping for your prosperity. That's what it means to greet one another. It's the same exact word for rejoice here. 
Rejoice means, friends, simply to be happy and well off. Now that's easy. This is easy too, but you've got to think. By the way, how many of you, be honest, tend to, when, when somebody's preaching, sort of shift your mind into neutral? The only hand that goes up is yours, Matt. But I think most of us do this. And what I want to encourage you to do, as always, you ready? Now listen. You can't be neutral. You've got to interact. You've got to pray. You know, I pray when I'm listening to a message. A lot of times I'm praying, Lord, you're speaking to me. I need to live this, and I'm not. Help me to go home right immediately because I know if I don't do this immediately, those birds are coming and they're going to take away the seeds of the gospel. And I'm not going to change. I want to change God, so help me, help me take that pastor's message. Don't put your minds in neutral. So what's it mean to rejoice in hope? What's it mean to be, uh, to start with happy and well off? And let me teach you this, ready? This makes sense. Joy never exists in itself. Pastor Tim, I don't think I know what you're talking about. We're filled with joy when a new baby comes. We're filled with joy on birthdays. We're filled with joy on sunny days after a bunch of stormy weather. Paul's exhorting us to be happy and well off, listen, in hope. Because there is no joy in a vacuum. Joy is always connected to something or someone. Now, that's just fundamental, but maybe you have never thought of it like that. We're told to rejoice not because we're a bunch of doctrineless, terrible theology, happy-go-lucky, roll-in-the-aisle Christians. We're told to rejoice in hope. But what is hope? If we're told to rejoice in hope, we probably need to arm our minds with a good understanding of what it is biblically to hope. Here's what I want to explain. Hope is the expectation of good from God. Now listen, so far I know you're with me, but this part is absolutely crucial. From God based on his past faithfulness. Friends, that's hope. If someone has had a habit of disappointing you, then you're going to hold little hope that they're going to come through for you on an important event. Hope is the certainty of future good based on past evidence. Well, Pastor Tim, that sounds great. You might have gotten that out of Webster's. Show me where it says that in Scripture. Let me give you just one of many examples, 2 Corinthians. God delivered us, look at it, from such a deadly peril... He delivered us in the past and now future expectation and he will deliver us. Look what it says. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, biblical hope is certain expectation based on God's past faithfulness. This is how we rejoice. If you don't believe God is faithful, friend, you can't have biblical joy. We say things like, you know, I sure hope that weather is good for our our family picnic. Or I hope the economy turns around. But friends, that doesn't capture the power of biblical hope because what's missing is certainty. 
See, hope is the desire for something good with the expectation of obtaining it. It's the anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's faithful guidance. That's what it means biblically to hope. Let me get even more specific. Hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past, listen, guarantees our highest good and what he's going to do for us in the future. Now, how many of us have that coursing through our hearts? You ever seen a joyless Christian? I've seen a lot. And I can tell you this, in every joyless Christian that I've ever met, they are hopeless Christians because you can't have hope and not joy. And you can't have joy with no hope. And you bring this back now. Remember I told you, you know, you can drag your deer in the wrong direction, doing it the right way. We've got to bring this back to Romans chapter 12 because that's where the context is. This is where Paul's speaking into. Paul's saying this. He's saying that a fully committed Christian lives to serve God and he or she will rejoice in hope that their labor will not be in vain. See, that's what Paul's saying. We're slaves, we learned last week. We're servants of God. We are to do the master's will, and when we do the master's will, we can rejoice, be well-off, prosperous, in our expectation of God's guarantee of victory in our lives through that labor because God's the author of our hope. See, the one who has placed herself on the altar, and everybody get this, this is so important, the one who's placed herself on the altar... Trust God. She set herself apart for God's purposes, God's uses. Now listen, she's extraordinarily pleasing to God as she serves him wholeheartedly. And the result, she rejoices in a confidence that because he has been faithful, then God will be faithful and he will act in his perfect time. Friends, we live, if you're in Christ... We live as servants of God, fulfilling the assignments he has given to us through the very power that he has supplied. And we can rejoice and hope that our lives will bear great fruit. They will not be wasted as we serve God sacrificially in and out of the church. Friends, haven't you labored for years? Don't you know someone that you love is not a believer and you've prayed and you've shared and you've tried to do everything you can to see them come to Christ and years and years have gone by and still they haven't yet bent their knee? Haven't you prayed for something in this church that you so desperately want to see happen and it's been years of the praying and still something, whatever it is, it's not happening? Biblical hope. Trust God for the fruitfulness for your labors in his time. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Here's hope, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, hope in the guaranteed victory of God produces the joy which fuels our service with cosmic-powered energy. So Paul's saying, serve God joyfully, connected back to verse 11. Serve God joyfully, knowing that he will triumph over all obstacles and fulfilling his will. And friends, there's no obstacles greater than the tribulations that we get into. And those, that's where Paul turns next. He not only rejoice in hope, but Paul says, be patient in tribulation. Now, I want you to put yourself in these shoes. You ready? True story. You've all read it or heard it. Three friends, all Jews, defied their king who commanded them to fall down in worship of false god. It was a crisis of faith. Who would they worship? Who would they serve? The one true God or the false god of Nebuchadnezzar? Friends, they made their decision and refused to bend their knee to that God. And what was the reward for their faith? They were bound in ropes by mighty men, Daniel says. And the furnace was heated seven times hotter than normal in the rage of Nebuchadnezzar. And those mighty men walked them and threw them to the, through the opening of that furnace so superheated that it actually burned up the men who threw them in. And the ropes melted like flax. And they're walking around in Nebuchadnezzar looking through the door of this furnace saying, didn't we throw three men in there? Why is there four? And why is that fourth shining brighter than the flames? Friends, Nebuchadnezzar, as well as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego learned Something very powerful that day that we have got to learn. We never, ever go through trials alone. Ever. Christ is always in them with us. And nowhere does the brilliance and the glory of Christ shine brighter than right in the midst of tribulations. Now, friends, isn't it the hope, ladies, isn't it the hope of holding your baby that endures you through the pain of childbirth? That and drugs. (laughs) It's the hope of seeing Jesus and the end of pain that helps Christians endure through death. So it's natural that Paul now, after exhorting us to rejoice in our hope of his victorious will, that he's now going to move us to be patient going through trials. But friends, the word patient is unbelievably rich. Here's what it means. It means to remain under how do you like that definition to remain under remain under paul says the test in a god-honoring manner not seeking to escape it but willing to learn the lessons it was meant to teach not remaining under in misery not in despair but with hope rejoicing in god's goodness and his promise of eventual delivery You know, there are some and many in our church going through trials of the most severe kind. It was an interesting week 
to be on Tuesday evening sitting with Sue Jaquiler, her husband Gene, and her children Esther and Caleb and her sister, and then go from Tuesday with a woman with terminal cancer that's been told she has days left to live, to then go Thursday all the way down in Trenton, the ups and down roller coaster of Craig's trial. There are people in our midst, some that I won't even mention to you, that are right now going through trials, the like of which we would never want. They're, they're painful. Our English version calls them tribulation. Do you know what tribulation means? It means the, the pressure that was used in squeezing olives in a press to extract their juice. That's what tribulation means. In fact, in medieval England, those who refused to plead guilty, they would have heavy weights placed on their chests and they were slowly pressed or crushed to death. In Scripture, this word tribulation almost always used of outward difficulties, but also it's used of emotional stress, great disappointments, broken dreams, crush the life out of people. Paul's exhorting us to remain under, be patient in these hardships that seem to be crushing you beneath their weight, learning to rejoice in our confidence that God will, as he always has, deliver us when the time is right. Rejoicing because we know as we stay under that hardship, not seeking the shortcut out of it, that our faith is being strengthened and purified. You remember that James series? James chapter 1, verse 3. We learned the trials come because they purify our faith and make us single-minded so that we live for God, not God and the world. They purge us of double-mindedness. In ancient Rome, there's pictures of this. In ancient Rome, they had a method for threshing grain. They'd have one man stirring up the sheaves the bundles, while another man would ride over them on a crude cart equipped with rollers instead of wheels. And attached to those rollers were sharp stones and rough bits of iron. And they were bound to these cylinders to help separate the husks from the grain. You know what that cart was called? It was called a tribulum, which is where we get our word tribulation. Because that's what happens. Trials squeeze and they crush and they separate and they purify the sin and the chaff and the disobedience out of our lives. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces what? Do you see hope? Do you see what Paul is doing? Here's what he's saying is that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to remain under, and while you remain under that crushing weight, God uses it to separate double-minded chaff from our lives so that our faith is purified, and a purified faith believes in the certainty and the guarantee of God's victory in our lives, which makes us and enables us to rejoice in hope. It's a big circle. That's why Paul's connecting rejoice and hope to right after that be patient. And tribulation. But he moves on. 
He says one more thing, be constant in prayer. You know, it's one thing to pray, and it's a whole lot different to be constant in prayer. The latter, friends, is a way of life. In fact, in the Greek, be constant in prayer, this is fun to know, absolutely amounts to nothing, but it's written in the present imperative. Imperatives are commands. A present tense means something that must start and ongoingly continue. So Paul is saying, I command you to habitually pray. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever noticed when you tend to pray the most fervently? The word tribulations come back to mind. You see where Paul's connecting things? It's the rare individual that has learned to be constant in prayer without tribulations in life. But what's it mean to be constant in prayer? The word constant, friends, this is really interesting, means literally to be strong, steadfast, and unwavering. Here it is, this is the key, towards something. Constant isn't passive. Constant can't be neutral. Constant is a verb, action, it moves. And it moves toward something. The word powerfully means to persist in a task with intense effort. That's what it means to be constant in prayer. You move toward God in a persistent, intense effort. Romans 13, 6, this word is used again in a different way. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. Now, I think I've got most of you adults in here paying attention. We just came through tax season. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. That word attending is the same Greek word for constant. Tax collectors are constant. They are single-minded. They are steadfast in their collection of revenues. Paul takes that word and he applies it to prayer, but he doesn't mean that all you do is pray all day long. That's not what Paul is saying. It does mean that we live our lives throughout the day steadily conscious of God. Let me see if I can put this in a way that makes sense, and then I'm going to give you a a little bit different meaning of constant. You ready? Think of this. Think of a husband devoted to his wife whose thoughts are toward her throughout the day. He goes throughout his day because he is constant in his love for her, friends. He's not going to engage in any inappropriate conversation with another woman. And she comes to mind throughout the day because she's the most important human being to him. He is strongly attached to her, faithful to her, passionate for her, seeks to honor her in every and all ways, whether she's right there with him or not. It's what it means to present yourself to God, verse 1. It means to give God all of who you are exclusively for his purposes, to be constant toward him in prayer but the word constant means something even a little bit different and i think this is where it's going to snap into understanding it had another use and i think it's going to help us know what paul means when he says be constant in prayer you see constant was a word that meant this it meant to adhere closely to someone as their servant 
to attend to the wishes of another at all times. That's that word constant. It was the duty of a slave who would sit back during a feast, staring at his master for the slightest indication that he wanted the slave to do something. And once he got the signal, he sprang into instant active obedience. See, we're learning to be fully committed servants of God so that we could say with Paul, we're not our own. We were bought at a price, and that price was the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. He's now our master. We are his cherished and precious servants. Because to realize that a slave was always someone whose personal will was subservient to the will of his master is freeing for the Christian. And they must be constantly vigilant to the wishes of their master. And the moment he signals, they must spring into active obedience. Friends, why pray constantly? It's to always observe. It's to go throughout your day with a vertical orientation. God, I'm getting out of bed this morning to do your will. The very moment that you lead me, I am yours and I will spring into obedience. What's that look like with your coworker who even though you are so swamped with work, you can tell that they're having a bad day? What's that look like in school where the kid that nobody likes is once again being teased and you're there watching it? What's it look like when you're at home And for the eighth night in a row, your kids are going to bed without any prayer, any time as a family in worship. What's it look like when you have a $100 bonus and God starts to whisper in your mind a person that needs some money? See, constant in prayer is to be ever vigilant to the direction of your master. It doesn't mean you're sitting in a lotus position and that you're praying and mumbling and chanting all day, that has nothing to do with constant in prayer. It's to always be, God, I'm your servant. God, I want to be used by you. God, let me know what to do, and I will obey instantly. If you have a data plan on your phone, then you have a constant connection between your phone and your email and your internet, and the moment it chimes, the moment it vibrates, You've got a message from a boss, a co-worker, a family, or a friend, and you can open it up and you can read it and you can react to it. That's what it means to be constant in prayer. It means that there's a perpetual connection between God and you that makes us perceptive towards his will. You want to find a really interesting way this word constant was used in the New Testament? Watch this. Jesus uses it in Mark 3, 9, same exact word. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. You see, to be constant in prayer is to always be ready to do God's will and to be listening and watching for his call. And friends, we are at our most vigilant when we're undergoing trials and tribulation why do so many of us tend to be so weak in our prayer lives you want to hear john piper's answer to that here's what he says we have tried to make piper says a domestic intercom out of a wartime walkie-talkie see prayer is not designed 
as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. But that's almost all we pray. Lord, provide for them. Lord, help us get through this pain. Heal them. Domestic comforts of the saints. Here's what he says. Prayer is designed as a walkie-talkie for spiritual battlefields. It's the link between active soldiers, not passive, active soldiers and their command headquarters with its unlimited firepower, air cover, and strategic wisdom. Now that's an interesting perspective. And Piper's getting at what it means to be constant in prayer. God, give me your marching orders. Not God, can you do this and this and this for me? That's why William Cowper, who wrote this hymn, wrote a hymn, he said this one time, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Friends, it's this constancy in prayer that enables us to rejoice in our hope and our God who is not off on a journey. He's near us and he keeps his eyes on us and we keep our eyes on him through prayer, ready to serve him at a moment's notice. Can I ask a personal question? Does it really matter your answer because I'm going to anyways. But I want you to at least be actively obedient in responding to it. Okay? Has God been speaking to you to do something that you've not yet been willing to do? If he is, and if you're not, you cannot rejoice in hope. You fundamentally cannot do it. And I promise you, you will not remain under tribulation. You will find the shortcut. And I can guarantee you that you're not being constant in prayer because the constant prayer warrior is ever ready to attend to his master. There's no better time to obey God than instantly. He knows what he's doing. I want to share with you as we close what it was like for me on Tuesday evening when I went over to Sue Jaquila's home. See, Sue has heard from her doctor that because of their cam- her terminal cancer that she's got days left to live. So I went over there for the purposes of starting to work on her funeral. A lot of people like to be able to have input into their funeral while they're still alive, and Sue wants that. Let me tell you what Sue said to my wife, Denise. She said, Denise, there are a lot of times that I lie awake at night and I can't sleep. I battle that pain, but I want to tell you something. I can physically feel God's hand holding mine. She said to Sherry, Yisley, I wish I knew God years ago the way I know him now. She told me on Tuesday night, Pastor Tim, I want you to know that I have absolute faith in God's goodness. He is so good to me. He has been so good to me. Now, at the time of saying that, Sue is lying back on a couch. She can't even move and can hardly speak. She's learned how to rejoice in hope. 
how to remain under the most severe trial a man or a woman can imagine and how to be constant in prayer, even using this to obey the voice of her master. We need to learn this. And no better time to begin to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation and constant in prayer than right this very moment. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, your grace in Sue's life, it's unimaginable. Lord, your grace in so many people's lives in our church, it's so evident. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to not look for that shortcut because it will lead to weak faith. And weak faith produces joyless hope. And joyless hope makes us attend to our own wishes and not those of yours. Lord, I pray that we would take to heart what Paul has taught us. Lord, let us learn it. Let us come around each other in a community of faith. Let us help each other. Lord, there are no islands in redemptive community. Lord, we are here for one another, and we need to live for one another. God, I pray that we'd serve one another. I pray that we would mature, and I pray that our faith would grow strong. Lord, enable us to make it through these tribulations with hope that springs forth joy and makes us ready to listen to you throughout the day. And in Jesus' name, amen.